0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Born in 1921, he was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. He founded Langham Partnership in response to the growing needs he heard from churches and pastors in the majority world. Stott passed away July 27th in 2011. He leaves behind a legacy that continues to expand through the power of God's Word carried by scholars and pastors equipped by Langham to preach the transforming truths of the Bible. John Stott stressed that we care and value God's creation. From an early age, he was an avid bird watcher and photographer, taking his binoculars and camera with him on all of his travels. He saw nearly 2,700 of the world's 9,000 species of birds. He even published a book, The Birds, Our Teachers, illustrated with his own photographs. He was an honorary chaplain to the Queen from 1959 to 1991. John Stott was a pastor to pastors, a servant of the global church, and an author of more than 50 books. He dedicated his life and earnings to seed and grow the ministry of Langham Partnership. Today's message is, Who is Christ?
1: Our subject is the question, who was Jesus of Nazareth? In any consideration of the truth of the Christian religion, no question compares with this in importance. The central question in the Christian religion does not concern the existence of God. There are many people who believe in God who are not Christians. A vague kind of theism is common in England today, and a thoroughgoing atheism, There is an uncompromising denial of the existence of any kind of supernatural being is rare in this country. Most people accept the fact that there is something or someone behind this vast and intricate universe in which we live. But this belief in God, conceived in some sense as the creator and sustainer of the world and of the universe, is shared by all great religions and by most philosophies. And to believe in God like that does not make the believer a Christian, no. The central question in the Christian religion, which must be asked and which cannot be evaded, is who was Jesus, the peasant carpenter of Nazareth? Because the Christian religion is concerned fundamentally with his person, who he was, and with his mission. What he'd come to do well who was he many views widely divergent have been held and it's popular at least i think in this country to regard jesus as having been a good man even some would say the best man who's ever lived and as having been a great teacher some would say the greatest teacher who has ever taught But I want to commend to you today the suggestion that the most important line of investigation is to inquire what view he held about himself. To me, this is the obvious, the self-evident point of departure. It's curious how many people there are who are ready to tell us uh, what they think of Jesus when they've never even bothered to inquire what he thought of himself. This is the illogical and inconsistent position in which they find themselves. They are prepared to hail Jesus as a wonderful teacher, and yet to ignore his teaching about himself. Well then, we must ask, what did he teach about himself? An excellent summary of this teaching is given in our text in Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. These words were spoken to a man called Zacchaeus, who was a dishonest tax collector in the employment of the Romans. Jesus had called him. Zacchaeus had received Jesus into his house. And Jesus had said, verse 9, salvation has come to this house. And then he went on, the following verse 10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I think it would be hard to find a more concise and comprehensive statement of his view about his person and mission than we have in this verse. In this innocent sounding sentence, three basic truths are implied. First, he regarded himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man, he said, came to seek and to save that which was lost. He was here referring to himself in the third person. Instead of saying, I came to seek and to save that which was lost, he preferred the expression, the Son of Man came. And this was, in fact, his favorite title for himself, as any student of the Gospels knows. Jesus frequently used it of himself in the third person, and I could give you many examples. Perhaps these will do. The Son of Man, he said, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He had just forgiven the sins of a man who is paralyzed. And referring to himself, he says the Son of Man has authority to forgive. Or again, after he had broken some of the scribal regulations about Sabbath observance, he said the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. again the son of man must suffer many things and the son of man will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him referring to his own anticipated sufferings and death he did use this title a great deal for himself the question is what does it mean well it's an aramaic expression and literally it simply means man and perhaps part of the reason why jesus used this title was to emphasize his real humanity but the title meant more than this and scholars are agreed that it was a title borrowed from the old testament where it's used of the messiah of god's king who's coming to establish a kingdom on earth the jews were eagerly expecting the most striking passage is in the prophecy of Daniel, Chapter Seven, let me read verses thirteen and fourteen. I saw in the night vision, says Daniel, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, which is a name for the eternal God, and was presented before him, and to him that is to the Son of man was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom, that all nations, languages, and peoples should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now, the essence of this remarkable vision of the prophet Daniel is that the Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven and going to establish an everlasting kingdom. And the remarkable thing is that there is no doubt whatever that Jesus applied this prophecy to himself. His whole message concerned the kingdom of God. The first words of his public ministry were, The time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is drawn near. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was being inaugurated by his first coming, But that he was going to come back at the end of the world to consummate the kingdom which he had inaugurated and this final event this consummation of the kingdom jesus called the son of man coming in his kingdom i suppose the most striking example of all is when jesus was on trial at the end of his life before the high priest and the jewish council the sanhedrin when he said you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, which was an abundantly clear uh, claim to fulfill the prophecy of Daniel. There is then, there no evidence whatever, that Jesus regarded himself as simply another prophet, Continuing or maybe completing the long succession of Old Testament prophets, no. Far from regarding himself as another prophet, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah whose coming the prophets had predicted. The scriptures bear witness to me, he said. Moses, the great lawgiver, wrote about me. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Or again on another occasion, speaking to his disciples, he said, blessed are your eyes. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and to hear what you hear, but have been able neither to see it nor hear it. In other words, you are living in the days of fulfillment. You are seeing and hearing the very things which the prophets had predicted. And so Jesus expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said that he was the shepherd of whom the prophet Zechariah writes, who would see the sheep scattered abroad after he was smitten. Again he said that he was the suffering servant of the Lord, whose dramatic uh, portrait is painted uh, in the second part of the book of Isaiah for again he was the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven in the vision of Daniel. In a word, then, Jesus believed and taught that all the marvelous prophetic utterances of the Old Testament converged upon him and that they found their fulfillment in him. Jesus taught that his task was to set up the divine kingdom, the rule of God in the lives of men which the prophets had for so long foreseen. All that, I'm suggesting, is implied in this title, the Son of Man. Now, secondly, Jesus also regarded himself as the Son of God. Let's quote our text again. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, you may say there's no mention in this verse that he believed he was the Son of God, I wonder. It's not explicit, that's true, but I'm bold to say that it is clearly implied in this verse, and that in the verb that Jesus used. The Son of Man came, he said. What does that mean? Where did the Son of Man come from? Did he mean that the Son of Man had come from Galilee into Judea? Or that he'd come into Jericho? Or that he'd come into Zacchaeus's house? No, it's plain that he didn't mean that. The Son of Man had not just come into Sir house to seek and to save that which was lost. Besides, in the Greek, the verb, which is in an emphatic position in the sentence, is in the aorist tense. That is to say, it refers to a decisive event in the past. Not the Son of Man uh, has come into Jericho, but the Son of Man came. And there is only one legitimate interpretation of of, of this verb, and that is that he came down from heaven. The whole teaching of Jesus expresses his consciousness that his life and his existence did not begin in the stable in Bethlehem, where he was born. The Lord Jesus was aware of a pre-existence before birth, and his language bore witness to it. Take a man today who is imbued with a strong sense of vocation and mission in the world. He would never use the language Jesus used. He might, I suppose, say of his life's work, for this I was born, but he could scarcely say, I came for this, or I was sent, which are the two expressions Jesus used. And when he said, I came, he meant from heaven, and when he said, I was sent, he meant from by the Father and I think at the risk of of wearying you uh, I must give some examples are you a king Pontius Pilate asked Jesus during the trial and our Lord's reply was this for this I was born and for this I came into the world to bear witness to the truth Jesus you see there recognized that he came into the world or again, Mark 10:45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Or again, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly, John 10, verse 10. Or John 6, verse 5, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Or again, no man has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven the Son of Man. You see how often, and these are examples selected at random, but you see how often Jesus referred to his coming, meaning his coming into the world. Or take the other expression, his being sent. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, he said, to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke 4, verse 43. And in the great discourses of St. John's Gospel, God is described commonly by Jesus as the Father who sent me, while he described himself as he whom he hath sent. Here's an example, John 5, verses 37 and 38. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness to me, but you do not believe him whom he has sent. Well, I don't think there's any need to multiply these examples. The evidence is really quite plain and unequivocal that Jesus both believed and taught that before he was born into the world of time, he had lived with the Father in eternity. Before Abraham was, he said, I am eternally pre-existent." He knew, in the words which St. John employs, that he had come from God And that he went to God. Now, this eternal relationship with God, of which I have suggested Jesus was conscious during the days of his flesh, he described in terms of God being the Father and himself being the Son. He was aware of this intimate relationship between himself uh, and the Father. It is not possible, honestly, to blur the issue by shrugging one's shoulders and saying, well, but isn't God the father of all men and aren't all men the the sons of God? Because although Jesus did teach that his disciples were the children of God and that God was their father, yet he maintained that this relationship uh, with, with the father which he enjoyed was unique and that their relationship was secondary and that it was derived from his. It was a kind of earthly reflection of the eternal reality which he knew in his own consciousness. Here is the most striking statement of it. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No man knows the Son except the Father, neither knows any man the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, he speaks of the Father and the Son in absolute terms, and he claims that there is a unique reciprocal knowledge and understanding between the Father and the Son. Now, all that, I'm suggested is implied in this verb. The Son of Man came from heaven into the world. There, then, is the second lesson that we may learn from this text, that Jesus regarded himself as the Son of God. And that brings us to the third, which is that Jesus also regarded himself as the Savior of the world. The Son of Man came, but what did he come for? What was he sent into the world for? And the Lord Jesus gives us his own answer. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Here is a very pregnant phrase. It's one of the clearest definitions that you'll find in the Gospels of the purpose for which Jesus came into the world, and it was taken up in a remarkable way by the apostolic writers of the New Testament. Take Paul and John. Paul, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a clear echo, isn't it, of Luke 19.10. Or John, 1 John 4, verse 14, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So the reason why Jesus was sent into the world, the reason he came from heaven, was not primarily to teach the ignorant, nor even to reform the wayward, but rather to save the lost. A man's fundamental need is not education, but salvation. There's no need to be squeamish about the use of that word. Jesus used it. It comes in the previous verse, 9. He said, salvation has come to this house. You see, what is wrong with man is not ignorance, but sin. That is rebellion against God, a breach of the commandments of God a refusal to submit to the authority of God. This is the meaning of sin. And because of his sin, man is guilty, and he stands under the righteous judgment of God. And salvation means first and foremost deliverance from the guilt and penalty of our sins. This deliverance Jesus came to bring. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He took the initiative in his love. You remember the parable of the good shepherd who had a hundred sheep and who lost one of them? What happened? Well, he went out into the wilderness to find it. He didn't heartlessly abandon it to its fate. He didn't leave it to bleat its way home to the fold. No, it was lost. And the shepherd went out to seek it and to save it. And the Bible says that we are lost. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. We're lost, sundered and separated from God. But in his infinite compassion, God refused to give us up to the just reward of our sins. He came after us in Jesus Christ, his Son. He came down from heaven to seek and to save that which was lost. And his search, his longing for our salvation, took him to the death of the cross. For there the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He underwent on the cross the fearful judgment which our sins had most righteously deserved. So dearly did Jesus love us, that in order to spare us the penalty of our sins he bore that penalty himself instead of us the greatness of his love and of his suffering for our sins is not to be measured by the whip which lacerated his back or by the crown of thorns on his head or by the nails which tore his flesh or the spear that was thrust in his side no we may measure the greatness of his love by that ghastly cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The penalty of sin is banishment from God. And this God-forsakenness which we deserve, the innocent Jesus endured for us guilty sinners. This is the length to which he was willing to go, This is the depth to which he was willing to stoop in order that he might seek and save those who are lost. Here, then, is our answer to the question, who was Jesus of Nazareth? For this is what he thought and taught about himself. He regarded himself as the son of man, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy by establishing the kingdom of God, Second, he regarded himself as the Son of God, who, though eternally with the Father in heaven, yet came down to earth for us. And third, he regarded himself as the Savior of the world, who came and died to seek and to save that which was lost. These are stupendous claims, aren't they? To be Son of man, Son of God, Savior of the world. Archbishop William Temple once said, it is now recognized that the one Christ for whose existence there is any evidence at all is a miraculous figure making stupendous claims. And I think at this point, I may quote from Professor C.S. Lewis, who says this, on the one side, uh, this is in the gospel story, there is clear, definite moral teaching. On the other, claims, which, if not true, are those of a megalomaniac, compared with whom Hitler was the most sane and humble of men. There is no halfway house, and there is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, Are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, My son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, Are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you'd gone to Mohammed and asked, Are you Allah? He would first have rent his clothes and then cut your head off. If you'd asked Confucius, Are you heaven? I think he would probably have replied, Remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The idea of a great moral teacher saying the kind of thing that Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, went on Professor Lewis, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. Well, I agree with Professor Lewis. Do you? Here are these stupendous claims of Jesus of Nazareth. We must come to terms with them. We cannot ignore them. And we cannot thoughtlessly dismiss Jesus of Nazareth as having been just a good man and a great teacher, as most of our fellow countrymen try to do. Why, if this is what he taught about himself, that he was son of man, son of God, saviour of the world, we cannot airily dismiss him like that. Rather, we shall have to decide that he was either a dastardly impostor, who has deceived millions of people into believing his lies, Or he was himself deluded, his poor mind unhinged. Or he was true. Those, I suggest, are the only three possibilities. Well, Christians unconditionally reject the slander that Jesus was either a liar on the one hand or a lunatic on the other. These theories simply do not fit the facts. They're inconsistent with the evidence. Take a liar. Are we to believe... That he who said i am the truth and that he had come to bear witness to the truth deliberately lied himself are we to suppose that he who condemned the pharisees for their hypocrisy went and eclipsed their hypocrisy by his own surely we cannot believe that all right then was he mad but was he Was he mad who lived such a life of incomparable moral splendor? He loved publicans and sinners. He had compassion on the outcasts and lepers and harlots. He washed the feet of his disciples like a common slave, and he prayed for the forgiveness of those who inflicted upon him the torture of crucifixion. Tell me, are these things, his compassion and love, His humility and unselfishness and self-mastery, are these things the symptoms of paranoia? Surely you cannot believe that. Christians, then, prefer to accept what Jesus taught at its face value, that he was the Son of Man and the Son of God and the Saviour of the world, and this is the irreducible minimum of Christian belief about Jesus that as to his person, he was son of man, son of God. As to his mission, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you believe that? It's not enough to believe. We've got to act upon our belief. We must come personally to Jesus of Nazareth and with Thomas fall at his feet and say, My Lord and my God. And then, just as Zacchaeus received Jesus into his house, We must receive Jesus into our hearts and lives and into our personality. And we must commit our lives to him as our Savior and as our Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian. And only that is consistent with our Lord's own statement. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost.
0: You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.